0: We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And one of the things that I believe this church can always do is you can think about the number of people that have been impacted through the ministry of this church and just thinking of the number of uh, men that have gone out from here to serve and pastoring a neighboring congregation and their at Temple and I mean just all over. And the number of folks that have been impacted. So that's, uh, that's quite a, a legacy to have and something to always remember. You know, when you get discouraged and, and, you know, Satan kind of comes against the church, just remember the reason Satan comes against you is because of the work you're doing and what you've done. Uh, <clears throat> I want to take time to, uh, just share another word of encouragement to you tonight as I prayed about and, sought the Lord on what I need to preach for tonight and uh, wanted, again, I think for this uh, the last couple of nights is just have a kind of a revival of encouragement in realizing who you are and what you have and what God has done. You understand those things and when he comes against us, it's that that brings revival and renewal uh, to our hearts. Uh, I didn't realize Brad Paisley was from this area. I just noticed that. I'd driven by that sign 20 times, never paid attention to it. But coming into Glendale, it says, Home of, of Brad Paisley. So we'll break out in a Paisley song here in a minute. But uh, uh, I like him. But uh, anyway, I, that's, you know, just to think about the number of people who've been impacted and lives that have been changed. Not just, you know, a Brad Paisley who does music and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are impacted by that, but, but it's not the eternal impact that you guys have made. And so remember that. Uh, a key factor, a key thing to think about and to understand about the Christian life. One of the reasons why we get discouraged and one of the ways that Satan attacks us is by getting us to focus on how the world identifies us. I mean, think about the identifications. Identifications. It is that you are somebody, if you make a certain amount of money, if you have a certain kind of job, if you drive a certain kind of car, if you live in a certain kind of house in the right kind of neighborhood, if you have the right kind of education and you went to the right kind of school, and all the things of the way the world says, if you dress the right way, if you look the right way, I mean, all of the images that the world gives to us, and we try to develop our value, and we try to develop our image of who we are, our worth as people, based upon what the world has to say about us. And, of course, if we don't measure up, well, then the world doesn't accept us. And sometimes we, as Christians, we often find ourselves in that in that mindset where we think the world is rejecting us, or we feel very rejected because we've not measured up to those level of expectations. But what you've got to understand, and, and what I want to bring, we'll, we'll deal with some things I've already dealt with, and I think it just is a theme that God has laid on my heart to continue to bring to the church. But it's realizing that your identity and your value is not based upon what the world says is important. It's based upon who you are in Christ. You know, growing up, I I wanted to play college football. That was kind of a goal of mine. And uh, there were two things that kept me from achieving that goal. One is that I stayed injured. I was very susceptible to injury. And the second is that I had a genuine lack of athletic ability. And you put those two things together and, and... you know, a college football career is probably not in the, uh, in the makeup, you know? But my value as a person was not going to be based upon my athletic ability. It wasn't going to be based upon did I get a D1 scholarship offer. One of the most releasing most freeing, most liberating moments of my life was when I realized that my value is based upon who I am in Christ. That's what Paul addresses here in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I wish, you know, in some ways, I, I sort of wish I'd just taken this as the text for the week and walked through this one text because there's so, it's so rich of what God has to say. We're not going to have time to to do that but what happens is when when you understand who you are in Christ you then understand what he has for you in fact paul says this he says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ that when you understand who you are in Christ and then understand what god has for you what he has done for you You can step back and look at everything that happens in the world and everything that's going on in in your life, and the one thing that you can say is, I'm blessed. See, most of the time we think, well, blessing is, and you know, even the Jews kind of got caught up into this prosperity that the only people that were blessed were the people that had a lot of money. And God's blessings are far greater than just the financial resources that you have in your pocket tonight. Look at what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Now, I'm 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 reading from a different translation than the New King James tonight. Verse four, it says, For he chose us in him. Well, for the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Let me let me Stop just for that moment. Let me give you a Bible study to do. Every time, this is very prominent in in several of the letters of Paul, what are called the epistles of Paul, but very prominent in Colossians and most prominent in Ephesians. It's that phrase, in Christ or in Him. In one place it says, in the Beloved. Every time you see that, here's the Bible study. Every time you see that, if you you have a Bible you can mark in and like to mark in, every time you see that phrase, circle that phrase. Or mark it with a a pen if you can use a, a highlighter. And then look at what it says about you just before it uses that phrase and right after that phrase and mark it with a different color pen. And then every time you come under attack, every time Satan tells you who He says that you are, you go and look at and see who who you really are in Christ. And go back and do this Bible study. It's one of the most important studies that that you could ever do as a Christian, is to understand who you are in Him. And so He says that in love, this is verse 5, He predestined us to be adopted... Through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to His favor and will. To the praise of His glorious grace that He favored us with in the Beloved. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He planned in Him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. In Him we were also made His inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of His will so that We who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to to His glory. Verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in Him, when you believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. When you understand who you are in Christ and understand what God has done for you, it is then that renewal comes to your heart. See, the need for revival, I think there's that one need. If we step away from the will of God and and we step into sin and we step into disobedience, revival is returning, coming back. And we we looked at that. That's what Sunday was about. But revival is also because one of the tools that Satan uses against us is that tool of discouragement. Where he attacks us, or he attacks the church, or he attacks our family, and, and we come under that, that attack. And, and we get discouraged, and we stop being what God wants us to be because of that discouragement. You know how it is when you get discouraged? You, you become more lax in your church attendance? You don't read your Bible like you used to. You don't pray like you used to. You certainly don't witness like you used to. I mean, it's really interesting that discouragement ought to cause us to run to God, but because it is an instrument that Satan uses, oftentimes discouragement causes us to step away from God. So revival is not just for those who are deeply in sin, but revival is for all of us. That renewal, that time to be refreshed. Especially as we go through those times of difficulty and discouragement. Well, the word I want to bring to you tonight is to remind you that as a church and that as a Christian, you're blessed. You say, well, how am I blessed? How has God dealt with this? Well, the first thing that he teaches us is that you have been blessed by the Father who has chosen you. You've been blessed by the Father who has chosen you. Look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Je- Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Verse 4, For He chose us in Christ. Now, it's interesting, that little phrase is very, it's a very difficult phrase to understand in the Bible. It, it, when you see that, the easiest way to interpret it is to interpret it in light of purpose. God chose us, and the idea of choosing is the choosing is that God has a reason and a purpose for your existence. I mean, you think about it. The best thing that could happen to any of us would be that we trust in Christ as our Savior, we we make that, that affirmation that He is the Lord of our life, and immediately we have a heart attack and die and go to heaven. I mean, what you guys sing about. I mean, if we really believe that heaven is all that it, that it is, and even more than what the Bible describes, that would be the greatest thing that could happen to us. Why in the world would God leave us here? In this earth that has been ravished by sin and by evil. Well, it's because God has a purpose for you. He has a reason for you. But in that purpose, it is understanding the blessing that God has chosen us. Well, what has He chosen us to do? What is that that purpose? Well, let me describe just three of these. Many, many more, but three of these. One is that He chose you so that you would be acquitted of sin. Verse 4, He says, before the foundation of the world, He chose us, here's the purpose, to be holy and blameless in His sight. To be blameless means to be acquitted. It means that no charge can be laid against you. Though, every time, you see, one of the things that happens is, those of you, especially if you struggled at times in your past, there's always those moments that Satan wants to remind you of your past. One of my old preacher mentors, I remember him saying this, and this is a great phrase. You guys have heard this, I know. But every time Satan tries to remind you of your past, you remind him of his future. (laughs) See, that's the spiritual battle. Satan wants to drag you down by saying, you are this. And he brings, what's one of the words used to describe him? He is the accuser. And he points that finger of accusation, and probably the accusation he is making is correct. But here's what God has said. God has said that He has acquitted you that His purpose in choosing you is that you would be blameless before Him, that He would acquit you, that no charge could be laid against you. So it doesn't matter how many times Satan points his finger at you, you say, well, how can I be acquitted? I am guilty of these things. How can I be declared not guilty? It is because you are in Christ. You've not earned it. You've not deserved it. One of the the silliest doctrines I've ever heard is that we could ever earn or work for our salvation. Because all of our works are those works that lead to our accusation. But it is because we are hidden in Christ. And we are protected by Him and surrounded in Him. That when God looks at us, He doesn't look at our past. He doesn't look at our sin. He doesn't look at who we were. He sees us in who we are in Christ, And so he says that we are blameless, but he also says that we're holy. That word holy, I struggle with that word. Because that's the word that God has used in the Scriptures to describe, number one, His character. And describe those elements that are connected with Him, the holy angels and things like that. Well, the word holy As being a part of the character of God, I struggle with that idea. To be holy literally means to be distinctive. When God says, I am the Lord thy God, you shall have no other gods before me, He is describing the holiness of God. Because God is not one of the gods, God is the one and only God. There is a distinctiveness between who God is and everything else that is in the world. It is not we, we make a priority list. See, here's the mistake that people make as well. My priorities are God and this and this and this and this. No, 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 no. You have two sheets of paper. On one sheet of paper, you put God. And there's nothing else on that sheet of paper. Then the rest of the second sheet of paper. Then you list other things that are important to you. That's the distinctiveness that God should have in our life. That, that helps us understand who God is. Well then, in understanding that, he declares that you and I are holy. It is the, the repetition that St. Peter makes in, in uh, 1 Peter 1 where he says, to be holy, and quoting Leviticus, he says, be holy as I am holy, quoting God. Well, what he's saying is there should be a distinctiveness of what it means to be a Christian. When you came to faith in Christ, God pulled you out of sin. And He set you apart from sin for Himself. And that's who who we are. You say, how has God chosen me? God has chosen you that there would be a distinctiveness in your life. And no matter what anybody tries to bring up about your past or about your yesterdays or whatever it may be, understand that in Christ, God has chosen that you would be holy and without blame before Him. How else has He chosen you? Well, He chose us that we would be acquitted. He also chose you that you would be adopted as one of His children. Look at look at uh, verse 5. He says that in love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will. Now, there's a second word that's really a tough word, the word predestined. A lot of misunderstanding about what the word predestined means. Literally, the word predestined, it's a surveying term. And what you'll find a lot in the Bible is that The biblical authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as they wrote, that they used specific terms that had very clear ideas because it drew a picture. Well, to predestine something literally means to set a boundary. All right, when you buy a piece of property and you have it surveyed, they will survey and will set stakes at the property line. So it's a very clear line of what you have. This is your property. Well, that's what it means to be predestined, is that there? the word predestined literally means to set a boundary. But it is not the idea where, and some take it where it's this fatalistic, Mindset to say that everything that happens to you is going to happen to you and you have no choice over it and all the bad stuff that's going to happen, it's going to happen and you can't stop it. We have any Presbyterians here tonight? You mentioned the Presbyterian Church. I don't want to offend our Presbyterian brethren. But you heard about the Presbyterian guy that he was a fatalist and he fell down the flight of stairs. And he got up and dusted himself off and he said, well, I'm glad I finally got that over with. That, that's not, some of you will go home tonight and you'll start laughing about two in the morning, figure that one out. That is not predestination. And we're afraid of that term. I mean, because I think it's one of those terms that some, they, they misunderstand it and it can be abused. And so we sort of avoid it as Baptists. We're afraid of it. It's not a term to be afraid of because it has nothing to do with what happens bad to us. It has everything to do with something good that God is going to do for you. Stay with that. Now, does it mean that there are some things God's going to do and you have no control over? Yes. Okay, why? Because God's sovereign. God can do whatever He wants to do. God is sovereign and He can do that. But it's always good stuff. Well, what did He predestine us He predestined us that we would be adopted as His children. See, one of the mistakes that you hear uh, people say is they say, well, we're all God's children. No, you're not. Read Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we are all children of wrath. We are not all God's children. Now, we are all descendants of Adam. Adam. I don't know about you, I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. I believe there were, there was an original creation, and God created man, and then He created woman. I, I have no question about uh, about that doctrine. So we're all descendants of Adam, but we are not all the children of God. So because we're not born as children of God, what does God do? He adopts us into His family. Paul draws out of, out of Roman culture in this, and... And he uses this legal term. Again, it's a picture idea because people understood adoption. That uh, you could be adopted into a family. There are several things legally that would happen. But, but biblically, th- there are two basic things that, that, that happen. One is that, that you receive the family name. All right, What is it that, that we called that the, that the people were called first at Antioch? What was the term used of them? You remember? Christian. Alright. word Christian means little Christs. It was originally a term of derision. They thought they were making fun of these people. And, and they realized, you know, that's exactly what we need to be. We need to be followers of Christ and be imitators of Christ so much so that when people see us, they see Jesus. And so that's where the adoption of that term came and where now it is it, it is a badge of honor rather than a term of derision. So we receive the family name, we also receive the family inheritance. The Bible, and we'll talk much more about that in a minute, but you need to understand that everything that God has is going to be ours. That He's going to share in us. That everything we are, the Bible says that we are joint heirs with Christ. And so we we share in these things. So we are adopted In fact, Paul uses the term five times in the New Testament. Once he uses it in reference to Israel and their adoption, but four times he uses it in reference to us. To remind us, you are a part of the family of God. See, part of the discouragement some of us have is we didn't grow up in a Christian family or you didn't have a good dad, or you didn't have a, a good mom. Some of you may, not, may have been orphans don't even know who your mom and dad are. And you say, well, you know, how can I have the joy of life when, when I don't have family the way everybody else has? Let me tell you something. You have been adopted into God's family. And your earthly family may not be everything it ought to be. But see, you've been adopted into God's family. And you are His. So, we, we've been chosen... To be acquitted, we, we've been chosen to be adopted, but then we've also been chosen because He has made us accepted not accepted, but accepted. Look at uh, verse six. It says for the praise of His glorious grace that He favoured us with in the beloved. Some of you, and this is a good translation, the way the King James says it, is that he made us accepted. That word accepted is the word grace. Another way you could translate that is to say that he graced us in Christ. See, here's the point. Everything that we have, you say, well, all this stuff that you're talking about, why would God do that for me? I've not earned it. I don't deserve it. Absolutely right. But the reason He's given that to you is because He has graced you. The word grace means that God gives us what we do not deserve. There's not any of us that that can say tonight, well, God, I've earned all of this. Aren't you glad, God, that you chose me? (laughs) There's not a one of us that can say that. The reason why we have these things is because God has given us His grace and He has accepted us. You know, last night I dealt with this a little bit, but, you know, we spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out ways to get God to like us. And, and a lot of the misery of the Christian life is we think, well... You know, maybe, maybe I'll be a better Christian. If I, if I go to church more, if I'll read my Bible more, if I'll pray harder, if I'll, if I'll work harder, if I'll, you know, if I'll uh, crawl on my knees up and down the aisle until they're bloody, if I'll sacrifice this, if I'll do this, then, then, then maybe, maybe God will like me the way that He likes Billy Graham. And you need to understand, God has already accepted you as much as He has accepted Billy Graham. You are as favored in the family of God as any of the great saints who lived in the past. Not because you earn it, not because you deserve it, but because you are in Christ. So, when we look at all the discouragement that's in the world, go back to the fact, listen, you have been blessed by the Father who has chosen you. Here's a second blessing, is that you've been blessed by the Son who has redeemed you. There were... In the Roman Empire, about six million uh, slaves. Slavery back then there it was, it was a little different concept than what you find in in the uh, modern era. Sometimes a person would be enslaved because they uh, they were captive or taken captive in a in a raid or in a war, something like that. But most of the slaves were what would be called indentured servants. What would happen is that if you uh, got into debt with someone, you couldn't pay off your debt, you could sell yourself to that individual, and then you would work for them until that debt was paid. And there were various levels of that kind of indebtedness. If your family could raise the money... They could come and then buy you back. And the word, the the official legal term that was used for that purchase was the word redeemed. And you would receive actually a a certificate that on it, it would be stamped, paid in full. Redeemed would be the word. That you've been bought back by, by your family. Well, here's what you have to understand, is that Jesus Christ bought us back. It says He redeemed us through His blood. What was the price of redemption? The price was the death of Christ on the cross. There is no substitute for that. The only way that we could be saved and the only way that our sins could be forgiven is through the fact that Jesus had to shed His blood for us. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. And so what does that mean when it says that Christ redeemed us? We've been blessed by the Father who chose us, we've been blessed by the Son who has redeemed us. It means several things. Number one is it means that we have that you have forgiveness. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this because I've spent the last couple of days talking about the forgiveness of God. But he says here, look at what he says. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The same Word that we looked at last night. He's not only redeemed us from our sin, from the fact that we've fallen short of the glory of God, but He's also redeemed us from those moments of rebellion. The intentionality of sin. When we sin, not only because there is the nature of sin, but it is that sin when we choose to sin. That's what, what Paul is actually addressing here. The forgiveness of our sins. So here's what it means. is God has taken all of our sin, all of our rebellion, every choice we've made to turn against Him and to disobey Him, and God has sent that away. And He has forgiven us. The second thing that he has done in that, in that he has redeemed us, is that he has revealed to us God's will. Look at what he says. He says that that he has lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him. For the administration of the days of fulfillment, when tragedy happens, what is it that the world does? The world begins to wring their hands, and they say, "I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow." Why has this happened? What I, I, we don't understand, and, and great fear overwhelms people because of the tragedy and the evil that is in our world. We see, as we as believers, though we are concerned about evil, though though we want to engage our culture and, and make a difference morally and ethically in what is happening in our world, it is we have an understanding that this world is not the end. There's something greater that's coming, that's awaiting us. See, this earth is not our home. We're just sojourners, just passing through. And God has a greater plan for us. The truth is... If a lot of these talking heads on TV and the people in politics really understood the will of God, they wouldn't say or do the things they do. I mean, you think about it. Some of the most foolish statements I've ever heard have come from a talking head on TV. And you realize that person doesn't understand that one day that our Jesus is coming back. And I don't know where your eschatology is, where your theology is about the second coming and that. I, I am a premillennial dispensational pre trib rapture kind of guy. You know. So just understand that. I you know, that's just kind of where where I are. I believe Jesus is literally coming back. He's going to take his church and and we're going to be raptured with him, then we're coming back with him. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. And it's all but the shouting at that point. You know. And I I, I have lots of friends that that don't agree with me, and I just tell them, look, when the rapture happens and you're floating up in the air with me, you'll realize you're wrong, you know? (laughs) You'll go, well, that that Hennard, he 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 wasn't right about a lot of stuff, but he's right about that, you know? (laughs) Bottom line is, we can just be pan-millennialists, you know? It just pans out in the end. I don't know exactly how everything... You know, Jim, I don't know how everything's going to come about. Uh, I, don't, I can't with definitively say, you know, this is exactly how it's going to be, because I don't think God intends for us to, to know all of those things. But what I do know is Jesus is coming back. And we understand His will, and therefore, our eyes ought to be focused on the coming King and recognizing that all of this evil and all of this tragedy and all of these natural disasters and everything that's happening, they're all signs that the time is coming. That Jesus' return is closer today than it was yesterday. I don't think we need to be like the prognosticators and some people. Again, you can get off on things and I don't think we need to get off on... On trying to, you know, date the time, uh, those, uh, that, that's not what Jesus wants us to do. He, he wants us to focus on people who are lost. And focus on our world that is touched by evil, but during this time you say, well, my life is changed because my life is not based upon what's happening in this world. My life is based upon the fact that my Savior's coming back for me. So He's redeemed us that we would have forgiveness. He redeemed us so we'd know His will. Here's the the third thing, is that He redeemed us so that we have become an inheritance. Verses 11 and 12, there's a couple of ways that those words can be translated. Verse 11, it says, In Him... Uh, some translations will say, we have an inheritance. Some have said, this one that I read says, you were also made an inheritance. And both, both ideas are taught very clearly in Scripture. And the reason why there's some distinction in how it's translated is just how you would translate that one little word to have, whether it means to possess or to become. And both, both ways to translate it are, are correct. Well, I want to deal with it from the fact that we have become, because in a minute we're going to look at the fact that we have an inheritance. Well, what does it mean to become an inheritance? Well, here's what it means, and stay with me on this. To be chosen, and again, this comes back to the choosing. To be favored, to be accepted now that we are an inheritance of God. That we are the possession of God. Now, here's what I want you to think about. We worship a God who, in his infinite wisdom, created millions and billions of things. And yet, God, being infinite, would be able to not only create millions and billions of things, but there are probably millions and billions of things that he didn't create, that he could have created, he just chose not to create. But in all of the millions and billions of things that God could have created that He chose not to create, that He would call His own. And of all of the millions and billions of things that God chose to create, that He could call His own, He chose you. And He chose you, and He chose you, and He chose you. Isn't that amazing? Don't ever let Satan or anybody else tell you that you are a nobody or a nothing. That you lack worth or value. That God doesn't have any purpose for you. Don't ever look at another Christian and say, Man, I wish I could be like him or be like her. Because if I could be like, be like them, I could really do something for God. You need to understand, God has chosen you. And of all the things that He could call His own. You say, why? Because Christ redeemed you by His blood and through His redemption. He made you the inheritance. God said, this is what I want. I want you. So you see, you've been blessed by the Father who's chosen you. You've been blessed by the Son who has redeemed you. Let me share with you the last blessing is that you've been blessed by the Spirit who has sealed you. What does it mean for God to have sealed us? Well, it teaches us two things. One is that you know that you're saved. Look at verse 13. It says that in Him we were also made His inheritance. Verse 13, in Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in Him, when you believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You say, well, how how do you know that you're saved? Now, some of you folks that are seasoned, as Dave used that word, the seasoned folks, when, when, when you trusted in Christ as your Savior, did y'all get a telegram? And, and see, I'm from the South, brother. You didn't get to hear that. I, you know, I'm a y'all, Ewans, and all that kind of stuff. You know. So, any of y'all get a get a, uh, a telegram from God? Anybody got a telegram? All right, uh, brother, you got saved nine years ago. Did you get a text from God on your smartphone? that said, Brother, you're now saved. Keep this text. Save it to your phone so you'll know. And if anybody asks you, you can show them. Anybody get a text from God saying you're saved? How do you know you're saved? I mean, I know that I've been born because i got a certificate that says I was born. That's a southern term, born. Uh, with a D. That's exactly right. I was born in Alabama. I was. So... uh i got a birth certificate that says that. I can drive. You know why I can drive? Because i got a license that says that I can drive. And it's got my picture on it. So I know I can drive. How do you know that you're saved? Alright? Here's your certificate. And here in verse 13, it says, here's how you were saved. It says that in Him when you heard the word of truth. Meaning that the reason why we're saved is because God initiated salvation. You realize none of us would have been saved if God didn't start the process. If God hadn't decided to save us and to make that possible, you know, Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God. Well, what he means by that is that if we were left to our own devices, we'd still be lost. But see, in Christ, you hear the word of truth. And so, the testimonies tonight, I, you know, I wish people would get up and share their testimony. I love hearing how people are saved, because I know the way, Ron, you were saved is probably different than the way that you were saved, and the way that you were saved, and the way you were saved. And it's amazing how God lets us hear the Word of Truth. Believe it or not, I was saved watching Billy Graham on TV. I'd never been to church. I'd never been witness to. And I watched Billy Graham on TV and got saved. It's amazing what God does. You want to see how big big our God is. So we, we, we hear the Word of Truth, the Gospel of Salvation, in Him when you believed. So you hear the Word of Truth and you believe. Now, the biblical word to believe does not mean to believe facts. It's never about facts. It's not just, I believe Jesus is real like I believe Abraham Lincoln is real. The biblical word to believe, the word faith, is a word that means to trust, to surrender to those facts. We believe, yes, I know Jesus was born on this earth. Yes, I believe that He died died on the cross. Yes, I believe that He was raised from the dead. And therefore, I put my trust in that. And the reason why I know that I am saved is because the Bible says that I am saved. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, how do we know that we're saved? It is because Christ is the one who has saved us. It is nothing about us. It's nothing about what you and I do. It's all about what Jesus did on the cross. And so, we're sealed in the Holy Spirit... And we know that we're saved. But let me tell you something even better than that. Is that you know that you are secure. Alright, look at what the text says. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What that means is the moment you accepted Christ in your life, the Holy Spirit came in to live in your life. Why? because He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. Now, what does He mean by that? Well, He means that the entirety of salvation, none of us have experienced yet. There's still a part of salvation that we have to to experience, and that is the glory of heaven, which you guys sang about. We've not experienced the glory of heaven yet. Well, how do we know that when we die... That we're going to go to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The answer is because the Holy Spirit lives in each of you as the down payment. Some of you will have a translation that will say the earnest of your inheritance. How do we know that we're going to have all that God has promised? This inheritance. Well, He is the earnest of our inheritance. That word earnest is earnest money. Again, it's a legal term. When, when my, my wife and I moved here, uh, she made out a list of stuff she wanted in a house. And so we got with a realtor and showed us some houses, and we came to one house. And she said, I want this house. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I turned to the realtor. Remember, she's a country girl. So you remember that. She's a country girl. So I said, yes, ma'am. And... Uh, I went to the realtor and I said, "What do I need to do to buy this house?" The realtor said, "Well, to to take it off the market and and have it and put it under contract, you've got to have a down payment. You've got to give some earnest money." And I said, "Well, how much earnest money do they want?" And she told me, and I said, "Say what? <laughs> I, I'm my, if my wife was here, she always amends this, but I'm a tightwad, and she'll always go amen." You know, because I'm very frugal with money. I mean, I'm just, I'm just really careful with that. And so I said, say what? She said, well, you need to write me a check for this amount of money and understand that if you guys don't fulfill the contract, if you cancel the contract without buying the house, you will forfeit legally the down payment. I went, say what? And she said, no, that's that's how it works. So, you know, I wrote out this check and... And I handed it to that lady, and I said, Now, honey, before I did, I said, Now, are you sure you want this house? She said, Yes, I want this house. So I gave her the money. And in giving that money, it guaranteed that we would then buy the house and fulfill the obligations of the contract if we had not bought the house legally. Now, I realize there's ways where they'll say, Well, they'll give you your money back, kind of thing like that. But legally... Giving earnest money means that if you do not fulfill the contract, you forfeit the down payment. Now, stay with me on this. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our salvation. Now, here's what God is saying. God is saying that He lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us as the down payment of our salvation. And if he does not bring that contract to fruition, if he does not fulfill all of the obligations of that contract, he will forfeit the down payment, meaning that he will forfeit the Holy Spirit, meaning that God will cease to exist. I want you to think about that. Because in this text, we have revealed to us, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing you have to understand about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is we're not talking about three different gods. We're talking about one God who reveals Himself very distinctly in three different persons. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Father is equal to God the Son, who is equal to God the Spirit, who is equal to God the Son. They are one in the same in, in essence, but they are three distinct persons. Not personalities, but three distinct persons. Is one of the most difficult doctrines to understand. You say, well, I don't understand that doctrine. You go back to the Old Testament, and the Shema, meaning to hear, I think I, I used this earlier, the, the Jewish Shema, Deuteronomy 6, four says, Hear, O Israel, the word hear, that's the word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord He is one. So we only worship one God. But in the infinite understanding of who God is as He reveals to us, Who he is, he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And you say, I don't understand that doctrine. I'll tell you why. Because God is God and you ain't him. There are just some things about God that we're not fully going to grasp. So God says that he places his Spirit in us as the down payment of our salvation. As the guarantee. And he says, I'll cease to exist. I am the God of promise. I am the God who never changes. And if I do not fulfill your salvation, then I will cease to be God. Well, I don't know about you. That's a pretty good guarantee. Because God has always been God. He will always be God. So, when you go through those moments of difficulty and discouragement and struggle, just remember this. We worship a God who is bigger than anything that we face. We worship a God who loves you, who cares about you as an individual. He doesn't judge you based on how the world judges you. He doesn't care about what the world says of what we ought to be. What He cares about is that you and I are in Christ. And revival will come to your life When you understand that you've been blessed by the Father who's chosen you. You've been blessed by the Son who has redeemed you. And you've been blessed by the Spirit who has sealed you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for what your Word so clearly teaches us. And I pray, God, that just as we have a time to respond, that that we would be faithful in our response to You. And God, that You would move in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, I pray that revival comes to this church, that You would move them from days of darkness or discouragement or struggle or worry. And Father, remind them that You've not forgotten about this church. That there are glorious days ahead we seek revival, Father, so that we would have our eyes focused on Jesus and who He is and not on the things of this world. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that I pray. Amen.